Thanks, Jonathan, again for, for leading us and for the, for the band and leading us in worship. If you have your Bibles, I invite you again to turn with me to Luke's Gospel and this time to chapter 8. And I want to look with you today, or tonight rather, at the account of Jesus healing a man that was possessed by demons. We discover from Matthew's Gospel that the immediate context is that Jesus has had a busy day and with teaching and healing. And he decides to go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee along with his disciples. And in Mark's Gospel, we learn that it was evening before they set out. And the Gospels record for us that that journey across the Sea of Galilee ended up being one of the stormiest that they had ever experienced. You probably remember the account where the winds and the waves began to rage and, and come to batter against the boat to such an extent that the disciples, a number of whom were experienced fishermen, feared for their lives. And the Bible tells us that in all the commotion, they go and they wake the Lord, of course, a carpenter. What on earth can a carpenter do in such a, a, a circumstance? But hoping that somehow the Lord would be able to help. And as we mentioned this morning, the Lord gets up and incredibly, he commands the winds and the waves to be calm and in a split second imagine the the winds and the waves and the the winds just battering against the boat and then in an instant at the Lord's command everything becomes completely and totally still and so it's following that eventful journey that we pick up the account in verse 26 of Luke chapter 8 as they arrive on the other side of the sea of Galilee and there they are met by a man that is possessed by demons And so let me read to you from Luke 8, beginning at verse 26. Then they sailed to the other side of, they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pause and let's pray again. Father, thank you for 
this night. Thank you for already what we've been able to sing of and our, our minds and our focus to be turned towards the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we ask that as we turn to your word now that you would open our hearts to hear what it is that you would want to say to us. And we ask, Father, that you would open your word and open our hearts that we may be changed as a result of having been here. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever we come to passages like this, both like the one we looked at this morning and and this one tonight, we need to bear in mind that these are real events. Sometimes we think of them almost in terms of Bible stories that we put at the side that we heard about in Sunday school. And yet in truth, these are real circumstances. These are real events involving real people going through real things. And after the night and the journey that the disciples had just had, you can imagine that as they arrive on the other side of the the lake, they would still be talking about all that has just happened. The Bible says down in verse 25 that they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? So you can imagine that they're talking among themselves, utterly amazed at what they have just witnessed. When all of a sudden, they find themselves in another life-threatening situation. The Bible tells us that as they get out of the boat and they stepped onto the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. And as we read on in the passage, we discover that this is one seriously disturbed individual. This is not someone who's out for a morning stroll um, and, and seeing the boat approaching and decides to go and to welcome these visitors to the land that have come to the other side of the sea. Instead, from what we learn about this man, he had probably seen the boat approaching and he actually takes up a position in order that he can come and attack them. And the only reason that he didn't attack the disciples and the Lord Jesus was because the demons inside him recognized the Lord Jesus and recognized his authority and knew that they couldn't do anything to him. This is one seriously messed up individual because notice what we're told about him in verse 27. We read that rather than stay in a house, this man lives in the cemetery or the tombs as they're described here. These were typically burial chambers that were carved out of the rock and the hillsides that would be located on the outskirts of the town. And so you can almost imagine this guy hiding away in his burial chamber cut out of the side of the hill, ready to pounce and attack any unsuspecting individual that may pass his way. Not only that, but we also read that he doesn't wear any clothes. Here he is, completely naked. Can you imagine what the disciples must have been thinking when they stepped out of the boat? At the time, modesty was a big thing for the people, and for the, particularly for the Jews. And so you can imagine what this man must have been like if he was to be so brazen to walk about completely naked on that hillside. Can you imagine what is going through the mind of the disciples when they stepped off of that boat? They have just survived the most terrifying storm that they had ever been in. A number of them had experienced fishermen. They knew what it was to be in storms. They had been in storms before, and yet there was something about that storm that night that terrified them. That it was like nothing or anything that they had ever experienced before. And so they genuinely would have been relieved that they have made it to the other side of that lake. And now here they are, stepping onto the shore, amazed by what they have just witnessed. 
And then they are confronted with this crazy person. Now down in verse 29, we read that this man is a history of violence. We're told that he is so dangerous that often he was kept under guard and was bound in chains and shackles. And just when the people thought they were safe, that they had managed to restrain this man, that he has such strength that he is able to break free from the chains that bound him. In fact, in Mark's gospel, we read that he wrenched the chains apart, he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Mark also tells us that this man self-harmed. He tells us that he spends days and nights crying out and bruising himself with stones. This is one seriously disturbed individual. And the Bible explains that he is like this because he is possessed by demons. And so we mustn't miss just how dangerous this man is. And we almost need to try and picture in our mind's eye just how serious this is. Sometimes we look at the the cartoons and the storybooks that we read and we saw from our Sunday school days. But actually what we need to think of is an 18-rated movie and realize just how dangerous and how desperate this man was. And what a, a serious situation the disciples were really in. Now notice that although he he is possessed not just with one demon, which would be bad enough, but he is possessed with what is described as a legion of demons, which as the passage explains means that he is possessed by many demons. The word legion was a Latin term that was common to both Jews and Greeks and was often used to describe a Roman military unit that comprised of 6,000 soldiers. And there is therefore the possibility that this man is possessed by literally thousands of demons. And that's further supported by the fact that there is enough of them to occupy what is described for us in verse 32 as a large herd of pigs. In fact, Mark, in his account, gets specific. And he tells us that there was actually about 2,000 pigs in this herd. And so if the word legion is typically understood to refer to a military unit comprising of 6,000 soldiers... And the herd of pigs into which these demons were cast comprises numbered over 2,000. We get the idea that this guy is possessed by literally thousands of demons. And so understandably then, he's very disturbed and he's very dangerous. You don't go near this guy. This is the type of person that you avoid at all costs. And you can perhaps imagine that the disciples are once again a little fearful at this stage. Given the man's history, the 12 of them are unlikely to be able to restrain him if it all does kick off. And so you can perhaps imagine that the 12 are keeping their distance at this point and let Jesus go forward and just see how things develop. But you will notice that the the, the disciples needn't have worried because the Bible tells us that the Lord commands the demons to leave the man. We're told in verse 32 that in response to being cast out of this man, the demons beg him to allow them to enter this large herd of pigs. And it's interesting how the Lord's authority is reiterated time and time again in the passage. Earlier, the demons identified Jesus as being the son of the Most High God. They knew exactly who he was and knew that he had the authority to do with him as he pleased. And in the passage, we read of three occasions where the demons beg the Lord Jesus. In verse 28, we read of how they beg Jesus not to torment them. In Matthew's account, he clarifies that the demons were asking Jesus not to torment them before the time. Because they know that a day is coming 
when they would face the final and the ultimate consequences for their rebellion against God when they sided with the devil and rebelled against him. They knew that a day has been set aside for this. In verse, one, they be- in verse 31, rather, they beg him not to be sent into the abyss, which is the place of temporary incarceration and punishment for those demons and fallen angels until the final judgment. And whilst it's true that some demons are permitted to operate within this world, there are many more that are currently bound in this place known as the abyss, and there they will remain until the final judgment. And these demons knew that the Lord had the authority to send them there if he so desire. And then we read in verse 32 that they beg him to be allowed to enter into this large herd of pigs instead of being sent to the abyss. And what is significant is that in the plan and the purpose of God, the Lord permits the demons to enter this large herd of pigs. And we'll see why in a minute. Because notice that almost immediately, we're told in verse 33 that this great herd of pigs then rush down the steep bank into the lake and are drowned. And so the question in my head is, why did the demons ask to enter the pigs if they were intent on killing them? Because presumably demons don't remain within dead animals. Where did they end up after they'd killed the pigs? Well, we don't know, but perhaps they ended up in the abyss after all. But what is interesting and so important to notice is that this is surely what these demons have been trying to do to this man for all this time. We're not told how many years he'd lived like this. Luke simply tells us in verse 27 at the beginning of the passage that it had been a long time. And would this not have been an incredible realization to this man what his fate would have been had it not been for Jesus' intervention? We're told later in the passage that he's now in sound mind, sitting with Jesus. And the first thing that he witnesses as a person in his right mind is to see the demons that once possessed him now inside this herd of pigs and within minutes have, has killed them all. And surely the question in his mind is, how is it that I'm still alive? How come the demons didn't kill me? And the simple answer is because the Lord had a plan of salvation for that man. And nothing and no one could thwart that. Not even thousands of demons could thwart God's plan of salvation for that one individual. And it's reminiscent of what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, where he says, what shall we say to these things, that if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for him as all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, for it is God who justifies? And later on in the passage, Paul would say, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, no matter what you may be facing, no matter what may be going on in your life, and even you, although you may think things are spiraling out of control, They are not. They are part of God's plan and purpose. And he holds your life in his hand. 
And nothing can thwart his plans and his purposes for you. As we see here, not even these thousands of demons could thwart or intervene or affect or impact God's plan of salvation for that man. After Jesus had cast the demons out of him, the Bible tells us that the herdsmen that were looking after the pigs fled and told it in the city and in the country what had happened. And we then read in verse 35 that the people come out to see what had happened. And they come to Jesus and they find the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus and clothed in his right mind. This posture of sitting at someone's feet was indicative of a listening posture and sitting under the teaching and instruction of another. Over in Luke chapter 10, we read about the two sisters, Mary and Martha. And in that passage, the Bible tells us that Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. In Acts 22, the Apostle Paul talks about how he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Sitting at someone's feet indicated you were sitting under their teaching and instruction. And so here we have this man sitting at the feet of the Lord, listening to him teach. And undoubtedly, some of the crowds must have heard some of the things that the Lord was saying. And so here we have the people from the city coming to see Jesus and the man that was possessed by these demons. And as they approach, they see this man whom they knew to be a danger to himself and to others, who would run around as a crazy person. And yet he is sitting still, sitting at the feet and the instruction of the Lord Jesus and in his right mind. And so notice what verse 35 says next. The Bible says in response to all of this, the people were afraid. You remember what this man was like before? Of how he was so dangerous that no one could pass that way, no chains, no shackles could bind him where they would have to get a gang of soldiers together just to try and restrain him, even for a moment, to be able to put the chains and the shackles on him. And yet no sooner was he bound, but he would break them free. This man would have terrorized this town and the people in it. And yet here he is, clothed, sitting with Jesus and in his right mind. And the Bible tells us that now, the people are afraid. And interestingly, they must have been really afraid for it to be noticeable for the gospel writers to record it. But you see, they're not afraid of the man. They're afraid of Jesus. Because notice that they don't ask the man to leave. They ask Jesus to leave. In verse 37... We read that all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from them for they were seized with great fear. Isn't it incredible that the people would live happily with a man possessed by demons in their town, terrorizing everyone? Going around naked, being a danger to himself and everyone around him, and yet they asked the Son of God to leave? Why did the people want Jesus to leave? Were they concerned that he possessed more demonic power than the man did? If he is able to cast out the demons that have possessed this man, does that mean that Jesus himself is the supreme demon? That he is able to cast out these demons and that he was possessed as well? 
They didn't fear Jesus because they thought he was possessed by demons. The very fact that the man was dressed in his right mind and sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach, demonstrated that Jesus was not possessed by demons, but rather has the authority over them. Because the only one that has true authority over such powers is God. And that is why they were so afraid. You remember that when the demon-possessed man first saw the Lord, as he was running towards him, ready to attack Jesus and the disciples, and he stops in his tracks. Why? Because he cries out and he falls down before him and says with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? It's already been declared who Jesus is. And that's what terrified them. Surely the herdsmen that were tending to the pigs heard the cry of this man declaring Jesus to be the son of the most high God. And surely that was part of what they reported back to the townsfolk. And so what had happened to this man gave evidence to the fact that Jesus really was the son of the most high God. And that scared them. And so they asked Jesus to go away. Why did they ask Jesus to go away? Because when people come face to face with Jesus, they come face to face with the reality of their position before a holy God. And they come face to face with the reality of their sin. And that they're accountable to Almighty God, and that scares them. And instead of coming to Jesus in repentance and seeking his forgiveness, so many want to deny him and would rather live their lives ignoring the issue than face the reality. And as we thought about this morning, that the wonderful news of the gospel is that the message is there for those who know they're not worthy to be forgiven. That Jesus gave his life in order that you and I can have our sin forgiven. Isn't it interesting that in response to the people's request, Jesus doesn't argue? He doesn't try and persuade him to let him stay. Instead, the Bible says that Jesus got into the boat and returned. When you read the Gospels, it's significant that Jesus never ever forces himself on anyone. Unlike James and John, you remember, who wanted to call down fire from heaven when the Samaritan village wouldn't welcome Jesus. But that's not our Lord's way. Instead, notice what Jesus does. In response to being asked to leave, he leaves. But notice that the man who'd been healed asks to go with him. And Jesus urges him to stay. And he says in verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. The people didn't want Jesus around them. So he graciously left the man there to be his witness and to be a reminder to them of what the Lord had done in his life. That he leaves them an example of the transforming power of the gospel. Because the change and the transformation was there for all to see. No one could dispute it. No one could deny it. Everyone who knew this guy knew who he was. They knew where he lived. He lived in the tombs. They knew that he was the one that terrorized the people. And so they would be able to see this amazing change that had occurred in his life. 
And isn't it an amazing act of grace on the Lord's part that despite being asked to go and to leave them alone, he leaves them a witness so that these people would have further opportunities to hear the gospel and to respond. Surely that was part of what the Lord was teaching this man as he sat at his feet, saying, here's the message that I want you to go and to bring to these people. I want you to tell them that the one that they've asked to leave them, the one that, you've, that they've said, would you please go away, has gone. But he's gone to a cross. And he's gone and died in their place in order that they could be forgiven. And he says, so I want to remind you to tell them that even though that they've asked me to go, there's a second chance for them. That I won't hold it against them that I'm going and I'm giving my life in order that they can be forgiven. And so that they will reflect upon and be remembered that that Jesus that we asked to go, that Jesus whom we asked to leave, has actually gone, but he's gone and given his life for us. And the man who sat there before them with his changed life would be the evidence of the transforming power of the gospel to them. The Lord would have been totally within his rights to have gone on that boat and to leave, never to return, and let the people face their own consequences for their sin. Instead, he leaves them behind a believer to witness for him. In order they would see the change in his life, hear his testimony, and perhaps be persuaded themselves to come to Jesus. And the Bible tells us there at the end in verse 39 that he went about proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Mark tells us in his gospel that when the people heard this man's story and testimony, everyone marveled. This guy went through his, his own city, his hometown, telling people about what Jesus had done for him. Could you imagine what it must have been like when he went and he knocked on the door of his family? They knew what he was. They knew where he had been. They knew what had become of him. And then one day, the knock on the door comes and there he is standing before them, a totally changed man. And they would ask the question, how can that be? We remember what you were like. And he would say to them, let me tell you about a man named Jesus. And every time he told that story, he would be reminded again of the Lord's amazing grace to him. Every time he reflected upon where he was and the condition he was in when Jesus found him, he would be moved. He would be humbled. And he would be amazed that Jesus had saved him. Think about what the disciples and Jesus went through to get to that man. They had been enjoying a great time on the other side. Witnessing and teaching to the people, healing diseases, the crowds were flocking to him. And the Lord says, it's time to get in the boat and let's go to the other side. And so they get in the boat and they go onto that lake that night and the fiercest storm that they have ever experienced comes upon them. And the disciples are terrified. And then they get on to that other, the other side of the lake. And just when they think that everything will have calmed down, someone comes to attack them. 
And yet it seems that the only reason that Jesus went to the other side of that lake was to meet that one crazy person. That one crazy lunatic that ran around the island naked, attacking people, terrifying them, doing all kinds of stuff. And Jesus says, we're going to go through the fiercest storm you've ever experienced. And we're going to meet this one guy. And this one man, we're going to change his life. And he's going to be a witness for me in that city. And as that man would reflect upon that, how he would be humbled and amazed that Jesus would have done all of that for him. That Jesus would have come across that lake just for him. Just to redeem him. As we thought of the, a little bit this morning, is it the case that we have lost that sense of wonder at the salvation that we have? That we've lost that sense of wonder about what Jesus has done for us? That we come here, we sing the songs, we sit at the Lord's table, but we're not moved, we're not humbled. And we're not amazed, at least not as we once were. And maybe tonight, when we go home, we want to go home, go into our room by ourselves and close the door behind us and take a trip down memory lane and think about where we were when the Lord saved us and remind ourselves as to where we were when Jesus reached out and redeemed us. And we'll find that we're humbled. We'll find that we'll be amazed again. And we'll be overwhelmed that he loved us so much that he reached out and saved someone like you and like me. Every time we reflect upon our salvation, we ought to be moved by the magnitude of our Lord's grace to us. What Jesus asks this man to do is so simple and yet it is so profound. He is simply urged to go and tell others what Jesus has done for him. And when he considered that, he would do it gladly because before Jesus intervened, he was naked, he was demon-possessed, he was mad. Now, he is the Lord's sole witness in that city. Now he has been commissioned to go and to take the message of the gospel to that place. And that's what Jesus calls each one of us to do. He calls us to simply give witness and to give testimony about what he has done in our lives. We don't need to have all the answers. Remember the blind man in John chapter 9? When he was interrogated about how it was that he came to see and, and be able to see and not be blind anymore. And he simply says, I don't know. I don't know how he made me to be able to see. But one thing I do is that though I was blind, now I see. Jonathan read earlier from Psalm 66, and later on in that same psalm, we read, Come in here, all you who fear God, and I'll tell you what he has done for my soul. And that's what we are called to do, to just simply go and tell people what Jesus has done for us. How much has Jesus done for you?
He ought to mean everything to us. The salvation that we possess ought to be the most precious thing to us. And may we never stop thinking about and telling others about how much Jesus has done for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us again tonight. Father, it's going to be interesting one day when we get to heaven and we're able to go and meet and talk to this man and to get a glimpse and to hear his testimony, the testimony that he shared to the people in that city all those years ago. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just help us to be able to share our testimony, to share our story, and to tell others about what you have done for us and what you mean to us. Father, would you help us perhaps just to take that trip down memory lane tonight and to remember where we were before you intervened and before you saved us. Lord, we thank you for such a precious salvation. And Lord, we give you thanks for such an amazing sacrifice and such a wonderful saviour. In Jesus' name, amen.